I encourage you to turn with me in your Bible for our New Testament reading this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, our final week in 2 Corinthians for now. I think it's an important book that we should revisit. So many passages, so many portions of this letter uh, worth pondering over and over again and even memorizing and storing up in our hearts as we remind ourselves of the great benefit of being members of the new covenant. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, final four verses, beginning in verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask that You would be gracious to us this morning, that You would uh, cause us to hear Your Word and the things that You command us to do, that we might be a faithful congregation that does those things pleasing in Your sight. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, how does a church recover from a fractured, divided set of relationships? This is the problem that Paul had to address as he was facing in writing this letter to the church of Corinth. Here we find a church that had been divided by party politics, a congregation that had been driven by personalities and egos, even a church that had tolerated heinous sins, not just of fractured unity, but of gross sexual immorality. How do you rebound from that? I think from any outsider's perspective, if one were to walk into a church like Corinth, how many of us would ever want to walk back in ever again? And yet the Lord did not abandon Corinth. Paul did not abandon Corinth. Paul now gives directives to a church that has... Um, it's a church on the rocks. And yet Paul is hopeful because we serve the God of hope and the God of comfort. So here Paul gives these final closing instructions that in some ways, in many ways, really summarize uh, the major themes that we've seen in this letter. This is an important passage. Uh, I think it's so easy for us to skim over the final few verses of any closing letter. Uh, but here I think we find that this is the icing on the cake. Uh, this is the movement towards which Paul has been leading the church this entire time. A letter that we've given great considerable care and attention to for 12 months now. And one that we would do well to consider in the weeks, months, and years to come. Let's consider this particular uh, passage of Scripture, of God's Word, in two particular, uh, uh, under two particular headings. First, we'll consider the matter of life with others. We see that here in verses 11 to 13. And then finally, we'll consider the fellowship with God. You see there in verse 14, you're given both the horizontal and the vertical aspects of our union and communion with Christ and one another. Life together. That is the theme of the closing verses of 2 Corinthians well, Paul, as we've seen over the past few chapters, has been giving what we might call a strong dose of tough love. Even here in chapter 13, he has been giving some fairly, uh, fairly harsh words. You see in those opening verses of this chapter, this is the third time I'm coming. 
And he begins to speak of uh, the, the need for uh, legal witnesses in a uh, judicial case, a church court case, and the fact that church discipline is coming and cannot be averted except by repentance. You would think that that would be... Um, it's hard enough to give those words, but Paul has to, as it were, drop the hammer of Thor. Not the hammer of Thor, that's a little too pagan. It's the hammer of God's Word. And it comes, and he gives that great warning that judgment is coming, but he doesn't leave the church without hope. Here he ends on a note of comfort and peace. These five single uh, directives that you see here in verses 11 to 13 in Greek, all of these uh, directives are all just single words in the Greek. Uh, these are kind of short uh, accented, highly punctuated uh, commands given to the church. This is how we should live in light of everything that Paul has said up to this point. What it looks like to go through life together as a church rebounds from a very rocky relationship. And the very first thing Paul says here is this, rejoice. Finally, brothers, above and uh, among all of these things, Rejoice. This isn't just kind of a cheesy, sentimental, closing, kind of hallmark card greeting. Uh, this is a word that Paul uses at the beginning and ending of every one of his letters. It is a word that uh, quite literally could translate it as, as to grace. It, it is the Christian's aloha. It is the Christian's hello and farewell. Yeah, in light of everything that Corinth has gone through, how would you ever expect a church like Corinth ever to rejoice ever again? Suffering as much as they have, going through as many difficult trials as they have, and yet Paul says rejoice. Above all these things, my brothers, I tell you to rejoice. It speaks of the grace that envelops the Christian's conduct and conversation even in the midst of difficulty and trial. It is the difference between goodbye and good riddance. Paul writes and closes with a fond farewell, but with a promise that he will then see them soon. We see this pattern in all of Paul's letters as he always begins with these glad tidings of comfort and joy and peace, and here he closes with the same thing. It's as if to remind you that even the strong, tough love that he gives is couched in an envelope and a blanket of comfort and grace, that these things are for your good. It's the great scene in the Fellowship of the Ring uh, where uh, uh, Gandalf has to tell Bilbo to relinquish the ring. And Bilbo refuses to let it go. And what does Gandalf say? He says, Bilbo Baggins, and he yells at Bilbo and scares him. He says, I'm not trying to harm you. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm trying to help you. Even though he has to shout and scare Bilbo, it is for Bilbo's good. This is what Paul is doing for the church of Corinth. He has had to give tough love, these strong rebukes, but this is for their great good. That the church might have joy. We even opened this morning with uh, a, a rather useful hymn. Uh, uh, one that we sing this season of the year, Joy to the World. Why? For the Lord has come. 
And yet this is not a hymn that we should sing just once a year. This is, a, this is actually a hymn that was initially written as a Thanksgiving hymn before it was a Christmas hymn. This is something that we should sing not just once a year, but the whole year. Paul begins and ends his letters with notes of grace and joy. Therefore, we should rejoice in the Lord. This is how we greet one another. How is it that Christians know each other? It is, and how are they known? It is by their love for one another. The totality of our lives are lives that are marked by joy, such that when times come of conflict, we should let joy guide us in how we are to respond, even when there are times of trouble. We should aim to mend the breach. And this is second, uh, Paul's second command, aim for restoration. Again, it's a single uh, command given here in the Greek, quite literally, be mended. It's the same word when uh, Jesus finds uh, the disciples uh, who he calls uh, to follow him. What are they doing in Mark's gospel? They're sitting by the shores, fishermen mending their nets, repairing what was broken. It's the word that was used in Luke's gospel to describe the preparation one underwent as a disciple under a great teacher. It is the means by which, according to Paul in Galatians 6, we should seek to deal with erring brothers, seeking to restore that which was broken. Paul says here, he speaks using very vivid language of the fractured relationships that have befallen the church. And he says, what is your goal? Seek to be mended. Aim for restoration insofar as is possible on your part. According to all the standards of the whole counsel of God, our goal, our pursuit, is not destruction, but restoration. That's how Paul even began his opening appeal in 1 Corinthians, saying, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but rather that you be mended, that you be united. For a church that has been fractured by party politics, the response is, seek to restore that which has fractured us. Things we can ask ourselves today, how can we mend those things that have been broken? What is it that unites us? Is it our own uh, personal political allegiances? Or is it something more foundational? Is it the unity that we have by being baptized into one body by one spirit in the name of our one God, Father, Son, and Spirit? This is so necessary to the Christian life. Not sure if you uh, recognize this yet or not, but the church is made up of sinners. Every church is. Ideally, we would all love to go to a place where we can live in peace and harmony 24 hours a day, seven days a week, where we could always get along, where there'd be no misunderstandings, no selfishness, no negative vibes, man. But we all know what our sinful hearts are capable of. Reality tells us, reminds us daily, how sinful we are. Outside pressures, misguided motives, uh, mutual misunderstandings, misgivings, not to mention our own personal selfishness, are all manners of factors that shape our actions and how we respond to various people. 
the way in which we mishear what somebody says, the way in which we speak a little too curtly to somebody because we have been annoyed by enough people already this week. It's so easy for our relationships to become fractured and frayed as a result of these things. It is so easy to slip up even when we mean well, much less when we don't. How many of us could ever uh, admit to always 100% of the time even meaning well? We all have thinner skin than we'd care to admit. Short fuses and long toes make for a volatile combination. And yet... Paul says, recognizing the reality of human sinfulness, be mended to one another. That implies a recognition that we have sins for which we need to ask forgiveness for the ways in which we've sinned against others. But also recognizes that we need to seek to repair those relationships when others have sinned against us. Trying everything we can insofar as, as on our side to, to mend those relationships, hoping that the person who sinned against us would come to their senses. That might mean forbearing for quite a long time. That might mean having to step away from that relationship for a time, but always with the hopes that one day that restoration, that friendship would be restored. That's the message that Paul has given here in this particular letter. The glad tidings of Christ's kingship is this, that He has come to reconcile man to God, and so therefore we should strive to be reconciled one to another. If anyone says, I love God, and he hates his brother, John writes, he is a liar. We all need grace, but we also all need to give grace. We all need to grow in grace. That means all needing to learn how to forgive as well as learning to seek forgiveness and own up to our own shortcomings, failures, and faults. If we do not do that, we will not survive as a church. Of course, the problem is not simply the matter of forgiving one another. Not only do we sin, we also suffer. We undergo sickness, unemployment, death. All of these things rattle us to our core. And so God has not only called us to be agents of reconciliation, but also agents of comfort. Yet another theme that we see throughout this letter. Here Paul gives his third directive in this section to comfort one another. If you are using your ESV, uh, you could see in a, a footnote, and most of your ESV says it can alternatively be translated, listen to my appeal. It's a single word. It can be translated two different ways. Comfort one another. Or listen to my appeal. First thing we need to recognize is there's great elasticity in what this word means. The question is, which way should we interpret it? What does this word particularly mean? Without getting stuck too much in uh, uh, the marsh, we can simply say this. I think Paul means it both ways. I think Paul is using this word purposefully under inspiration of the Spirit that we are called to comfort one another on the one hand. That is how Paul had begun this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who comforts us with His Spirit so that when we undergo hardship and trial and suffering, we might comfort those with the same comfort that we have been given as well. God comforts us in our sorrows so that we can be agents of comfort. 
And yet we recognize that Corinth was on the verge of rejecting Paul's message, that apostolic message that salvation comes through Christ alone rather than the kind of celebrity culture that pervaded the day. And Paul is saying, listen to my appeal. We are called to be agents of comfort and agents of reconciliation. To reject the Gospels, to reject uh, the benefits of the Gospel. This is why the Gospel is so important. Comfort one another in the hope that the Gospel gives. Hear what God's Word says in times of distress and despair. And hear what God's Word says when we are disobedient and and are called to repentance and faith. Paul writes to Timothy, all Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction and training in righteousness. In other words, God's Word tells us where not to go, and it also tells us where we ought to go. God's Word rebukes us, but it also encourages us. God strengthens us when we are weak, but He also corrects us when we wander astray. We cannot limit the Scriptures to only one of these functions. This is the great instruction in the faith. It is a saying, it's kind of our our spiritual GPS going, no, don't go that way. You go positively that way. When you have sinned, it calls us to repentance, reminding us how great our sin is. And yet when we suffer at the sins of others or natural calamities or disaster, all the effects of the fall God's Word not only reprimands us, but also comforts us. How rich is God's Word? And so we ought to use God's Word to comfort one another. Not just to comfort one another, the fourth directive. Agree with one another. Quite literally, think the same things. It's that same concept and word that Paul says when he writes to the church of Rome nearly a year later, Romans 12, 16. Live in harmony with one another. Harmony. Paul is calling for unity, not for uniformity, but unity. This is not a case of the Stepford wives or children of the corn. That there's, there's a real complementarity that attends the body of Christ. One of the things that I love about our church's hymnody are the four-part harmonies. Something that I think is lost in a lot of contemporary songs, good as the lyrics might be, that the four-part harmonies really exhibit a, a, a real, again, a harmony, something uh, in, in the musical realm that the church as a body ought to exhibit in, uh, in our own life uh, together with one another. All of us are given different callings of gifts. This is not just a generic warehouse factory where we're all being molded into cookie-cutter you know, uh, uh, pictures. The Lord has given each of us particular gifts and graces and callings. And for everyone who is a member here, the Lord has put you here at this particular time, at this particular place, giving you very particular functions and gifts that you might serve the body here. It's intended to complement one another. It would be really awkward if everybody in here had the exact same gifts. You know, uh, some people have a gift for administration. But man, it would be really awkward if we just had a room full of administrators and nobody was hospitable to one another. If everybody was just hospitable but we had no, no form or anything, it would just, 
You know, everything is needed together. Not everybody could be the foot. Not everybody could be the hand or the eye or the mouth or the nose. But the Lord has fitted us together personally, given personal oversight to this particular congregation. So he calls us to live in harmony with one another, not just to complement one another, hey, nice tie, and so on and so forth, but to, to complement one another, like hand in glove. How is it that the, how has the Lord fitted us together? How has he fit us together? That we might exhibit the unity that is found in serving together in humility. Finally, he says here, live in peace, pursue it. Instead of breaking up into political factions, pursue unity. Christ's church exhibits a greater unity than any political party seen on the face of the earth. This should be a church that is not bound by our, uh, a single a political identity, but a church that is bound together under the lordship and kingship of Christ. Instead of seeing the worst in others try to get their perspective, when a relationship fractures, fractures do not let it fester, but rather pursue reconciliation. Let this be a church of peace. We have been called as one church, therefore, be what you are. Be one church. Live in peace and harmony with one another. This isn't just kind of a one and done thing, like, okay, well, let me check this off. I've, I've lived in peace with everybody. I never have to think about it ever again. This is an ongoing thing that we always have to pursue for those who have been married for any number of years or perhaps even any number of weeks. You know that it takes commitment to live in peace with one another. Sometimes it'll be easier, sometimes it'll be harder, but it always requires work. And this is what Paul is calling the church to do, to be at such peace that even our greetings are marked by love. In the ancient world, uh, here's a, the ancient world is so fractured by various uh, uh, segments of society, be it uh, a social class or, or, or gender or uh, ethnicity or any number of things, and yet here is a church that all those walls have come crashing down. Christ has broken that, that middle wall of partition, as he writes, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2. For now, irrespective of social status or gender or ethnicity, everyone greets one another as equals because the cross has leveled the playing field. We all have the same status before God because we are all sinners that are justified by God's grace alone, received through faith alone. So for all the social distinctions that might exist outside those four walls, they don't exist here. We all have equal access before the throne of grace, and so we greet one another in love as equals question is that you think this sounds so great this sounds so glorious how could this ever be a reality well paul tells us where the source of such peace and comfort and reconciliation and unity is found and it is found in the blessings given upon us by our great and triune god you see that here in that final verse here in verse 14, here we are drawn, our uh, attention is drawn to that uh, Trinitarian fountain. 
to taste the grace, to know the love, and be drawn into fellowship with the living and triune God. This moves us from the horizon to the vertical plane. Paul is directing our attention, showing us, this is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about in Life Together, that our life uh, uh, horizontally is bound up in the vertical relationship that we have with our God and King. And here he reminds us of that great progression, that it is the Son who leads us to the Father, and it is the Father who has given us His Spirit that we might be drawn closer to Him. The source is not a nameless source. Christ is the fountain of every blessing, as we so often sing. I remember seeing a TV preacher uh, on CNN, this is about a decade back, he had just written uh, a very popular book, and for the next 10 minutes that he was on the air, he spoke an awful lot about grace, and not once did he ever speak about Christ. We need to be very clear, there is no grace apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. There isn't. If we are to proclaim that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him, we cannot pretend that grace is something that happens apart from Christ Himself, who is our fountain of grace. He is the fountain of every blessing. There is no other source of salvation but through faith in His name. And it is this grace, this saving grace that shapes our lives. It sustains us in sorrow. It shapes us and molds us into Christ's likeness that we might look like our Savior. It is this grace that provides us not only for our spiritual, but also through our material needs. These are the very things that Paul has been talking about this entire letter. That we, as the, the beneficiaries of the new covenant, have been given something far greater than even Israel had under the old covenant. Because although they possessed Christ uh, in, in form, uh, in, in prophecy, in, in shadowy uh, means, we now have Christ, the substance, because He now gives us His Spirit and shapes us to look like Him. He provides for us in all that we need for life and for godliness. It's mirrored in that benediction. It's an envelope of grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ is what leads us to do these things because as we have been united to Christ, so Christ calls us through Paul and his exhortation to be united to one another, to seek to mend those broken relationships. Here, Paul speaks not just of the grace of Christ, but also of the love of God, a love that builds up and does not tear down, a love that exerts itself in patience and kindness and calls us to do the same. It is a love that compels us and directs our steps, that seeks to lavish uh, uh, good on one another because God has lavished His goodness and His love upon us. It is a love that seeks to exhaust oneself for the sake of one another, even as Paul has already written that is the task of the ministry to model that, saying, I will exhaust myself to ensure that your well-being is preserved. There is no party politics with Paul 
He is not in it for Himself. He will undergo great humiliation to ensure that the church remains united. And if they don't, they will be judged. This is not a skimpy salvation. Rather, it is an unadulterated inundation of love and mercy. A love that washes clean. A love that carries us safely to heaven. A love that supports and sanctifies. A love that protects and preserves. It is that love which calls us into communion with everyone who has been baptized into the Spirit of God's only Son. And in doing so, calls us to fellowship with the great and triune God. This is the goal and purpose of our calling. This is, in fact, how Paul had begun his first letter to this very thing you have been called into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ and with the Spirit, the communion of the Spirit. It is an exclusive fellowship. Paul had already written once to Corinth saying, you cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. This is an exclusive relationship. A relationship that not only produces holiness as the Spirit cleanses us from all of our sin, but it is a relationship that requires holiness. But the very thing that God requires, He provides. So great is His grace and mercy on sinners. It is a fellowship with the living God that spills over into our fellowship with one another. John writes here in his first epistle, the very thing we have seen and heard we proclaim even to you so that you might have fellowship with us. Why? For our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. It is a unity that is not seen outside the walls of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. This is more than a community. This is a communion. The communion of the saints where our life together is bound up with our life in Christ. It is in fact the great benefit of the new covenant as the Spirit has been poured out on the church making us recipients of the very things that Christ secured at the cross. It's a great hymn that we sing where the line goes, Solid joys and lasting pleasures, none but Zion's children know. What a great way to summarize these closing remarks from Paul. If we could summarize 2 Corinthians, it would be like this, that Paul has attested to the supremacy of the new covenant in terms of the redemption that has been accomplished and the redemption that is applied. Redemption accomplished. Christ is secured the new covenant in His blood. It has been sealed by the Spirit who has been shed abroad in our hearts. And this brings us into joyful fellowship with Him and with the rest of the redeemed. And so we manifest and maintain that union as we partake in the benefits and the application of redemption. Sitting under the faithful ministry of, a word, of the Word of God, enduring suffering together while being sustained by life in the Spirit, until that day when the church's wilderness wanderings gives way to the realm of heavenly glory. So that we can say with Paul, finally, brothers, rejoice. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do ask that you would make us a truly apostolic church.
one that bears the marks of communion with our Father, Son, and Spirit, that lives according to the apostolic directives given to us through your faithful servant Paul, given under inspiration of the Spirit. May we be faithful to heed the warnings of your word and receive the comforts that are found in your word as well. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.